Welcome to the Rural Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Dana Larson. Today we're with Jay Wells of True Ranch Collection based out of Tucson, Arizona. Jay and his crew are doing some incredible work with historic ranch properties in the West and have most recently created a concept called a pop-up dude ranch. It's amazing. And it all started last summer at the historic OTO Ranch in Montana, just north of Yellowstone. And it's honestly unlike anything I've ever seen. Jay also happens to have spent a part of his career as a preservation architect, and his perspective is one you will all appreciate. Now he's combining his background in preservation architecture and hospitality with ranching, and today he's sharing why it's so important to save these places and preserve this authentic lifestyle of dude ranching, all while providing an unforgettable experience in the West. Before we get started, I have some exciting news. Rural Revival has launched Social for Small Towns, a social media marketing course that's different than anything you've seen out there, and it's created specifically for small businesses in small towns. If I'm being totally transparent, I was burnt out on social media. While I love interacting with my audience, I was tired of feeling the obligation to constantly keep up with the algorithm. So I took a break until I could find a way to make it enjoyable again. And I found it through the strategy we're offering in this course. And since then, social media has actually been fun for me. I feel like I finally have the keys I need to understand how to do this effectively. I believe in what we're bringing you in this course because it's been a game changer for me and I know it can do the same for you. Enrollment is now open through the end of February. So get signed up at the link in the show notes and send this to your friends who need this course too. And now here we go with Jay Wells. All right, today I'm here with Jay Wells from True Ranch Collection based out of Tucson, Arizona. Jay is doing some incredible work with historic ranch properties in the West, and I'm so excited for this interview. Jay, thanks for being on the podcast. It's good to see you again. You too. Okay, so we had a very fortuitous meeting uh, last summer out in Montana. I was hiking up to the historic OTO ranch, and this was the first dude ranch in Montana. And I love a good, you know, ranch historic setting. And so that's what I was expecting to see. But what I ended up stumbling across was way more than that and way better. So Jay and his crew were tearing down from an event that they had been hosting there last summer. And um, I was so impressed. I don't want to give it all away. But Jay, tell us a little bit about you and maybe what led up to you taking on these historic ranch projects, if you will. Well, uh, uh, not knowing that we had a ranch in Montana, uh, the actual Forest Service uh, actually uh, reached out, and uh, the OTO is on the National Register. It was, as you said, a dude ranch. Uh, but in any event, 1939 was the last guest that they had there. And uh, so they called us up uh, about eight, 18 months ago or so and said, you know, we've got this ranch and we need to kind of rejuvenate it somehow, some way, would you come take a look? So we went up and saw it and I was blown away. Um, you know, all of our, all of our dude ranches are historic properties and, and, uh, to find something knowing that it had been vacant since 1939 and seeing it in the condition, uh, that we found it just blew my mind. I mean, it was just beautiful, authentic, uh, untouched, uh, 
you know, still had outhouses, <laughs> you know, all of those kinds of things that, but, you know, it had so much history and, and so much personality and, and, you know, all these historic places, uh, have a lot of personality, but anyway, we went up and met them and, and, and they, I said, I don't know how we can help you, but I'm in. And, you know, we were, we were excited about the opportunity. And so we came back to them about a month later with a concept that we call a pop-up dude ranch. Uh, and last summer was the first attempt at it, and it was successful in, in some ways and, and not successful in others, uh, thanks to the Yellowstone flood. But but it was a joy to get involved with it, and we're going back this summer for for uh, uh, doing it a little bit longer this, this summer. And so it'll be fun. We're looking forward to it. Yeah. So to give people some context, this is just north of the north entrance of Yellowstone, and there was a historic flood last year, which closed that entrance. But it's not very far outside of the entrance, actually, that you find the OTO Ranch. And when I came up, I mean, literally, you had horse trailers, cattle trailers that you were putting mattresses in. You brought in all of this cool Western decor to make it look like it would have looked back in the day. So tell us more about that. Well, we, we do try, you know, we try to be as authentic to the original ranches as we can be um, uh, in the sense of appointments, the, the type of artwork, the type of uh, bedding, uh, furnitures, et cetera. So uh, that's something that I have a lot of fun doing. And I've been a you know, preservation architect for years, so I had a lot of familiarity uh, with what types of items that we needed. But, you know, the the, the uh, classic lodge in the day uh, was easy to kind of reinvent because we had so many photos of, of photos from the 20s and 30s. Um, and the OTO just was such a, uh, a classic. I mean, the Navajo rugs on the wall, the moose head over the entry and, you know, those kind of type of things that you would expect to find. So it was really just sort of channeling what the OTO was. And, and, uh, and I think we did a really good job of doing it to the, to the point where the, the modern photos kind of recreate uh, the older photos There are little upgrades to it, but you know, all in all, it was a lot of fun <laughs> to do it that way for sure. Well, I got in, it was, some of it was already torn down, but even what I did get to see, it was incredible. And what impressed me too was like, you have to think there's no electricity out there. So you had to like basically bring in your electricity. You there were you laid pipe on top of the ground to make for some water and bathroom situations to work. And it was impressive. Well, you know, my partner, Russell True, is a longtime lifetime dude rancher and, and he's the real cowboy in the in the combination. And he said, you know, ranches had always been about living off the grid and survival uh, and one of the ranches down here in Arizona and one, I guess it's now been about 15 years, uh, was the largest private solar uh, installation in, in the state of Arizona. Uh, so that part of it was actually fairly easy. And, and um, you know, the technology has come about, but we brought in solar panels, um, you know, the battery storage units, uh, propane on demand, propane heaters. Uh, and the biggest trick was that they, they had no bathrooms. As I, as I said earlier, there were outhouses. So we did kind of bring in these modern uh, that we had custom constructed uh, bathrooms for each one of the cabins. So they had a pretty luxurious little bathhouse. And that was <laughs> a lot of going. Just saw one of those while you were there, no? Yeah, I saw them. Uh, but yeah, it was very impressive. Well done. So you came in for a couple of weeks. You're coming back this year. What does an experience look like for someone who who comes to the OTO? 
Well, of all of the ranches, because of its remoteness, because of its authenticity being the fact that literally we are just t- trying to to fashion this event around the structure that's already there, uh, it is really a, the what I don't I don't think there's another dude ranch experience that can quite be that authentic uh, in the sense that you're kind of roughing it. You know, you you've got an outdoor bathroom. It's a, once you get in the bathhouse, it's a nice luxurious little place but but still you have to go outside the cabin to, to go there uh there's nothing around it you can't uh drive a car up there you have to be brought up uh, or ride up and on a horse and so being back up in the, at that altitude and that close to yellowstone the entrance to the ranch is right off the yellowstone river and uh you're 10 miles as you said uh, from the northern entrance to yellowstone so what we try to do is is uh, you know they they come for either a three night stay or a six night stay so they can come in on a sunday and leave on a wednesday and come in on a wednesday and leave on a saturday or they come in on a sunday and stay all the way to saturday what why that's important is it gives you a chance to bond with the other the guests it gets you a chance to to kind of soak up uh uh what the lifestyle was like in those days we cook all of the food in an outdoor tent uh but we eat in the lodge uh you know uh, we have a big spread back in the billiard room where all the booze and everything is part of the combination but it's a lot of fun and and it's a mixture of horseback riding archery uh we do some shooting uh of course there's lots of riding up into the mountains uh we have um uh, rafting offer a rafting trip on the Yellowstone. Uh, we offer a tour of the Yellowstone on Wednesdays for those that actually stay the full uh, six nights. So that's included in the package. But it gives them a chance to get out there and really understand what the ranch is and not just someone coming to stay the night because they want to go tour the Yellowstone. It is literally a, a ranch experience, and we're happy about the way it's, it worked out last year. Everyone was delighted with it. We had more people than we have but the flood did that and you know you can't get mad about god and the the cure his sense of humor <laughs> right uh we're actually opening up the latter part of june as opposed to the latter part of uh of uh, july so it'll open up on the 25th of june and run until august 12th and then i cannot remember if you were there when before or after the open house uh, but on the very last Sunday, we had an open event for people to come from Bozeman, Billings. They came from all over Montana, actually. And uh, we thought there was going to be somewhere around 75. And I thought, well, we'd be really blessed if we got 100 people. And over 600 people showed up. <laughs> we were we were unthought refried beans <laughs> to feed people. <laughs> but it was. This year, we're doing a, a two-day open house so that we can kind of give, give the people an opportunity to come and not be just such a mad rush as it was last last summer. So that's a, that's a big improvement. That's really cool for you guys. And the north entrance to Yellowstone is going to be open this year, right? Oh, yeah. No, they, got, they actually opened it up uh, while were open but by that time people had just changed their summertime plans and and you know that's understandable uh and you know the poor businesses and gardener suffered the most yep. uh, and that that was really a shame but we and the open house we actually uh, donated all the money did raffle tickets etc to raise money for the gardener community fund that were supporting the local businesses from the effects of the flood and the loss of business. And I think we raised close to $4,000 for them on that one day. So we're hoping to repeat that uh, this this time as well. That's incredible. Yeah. It was hard to drive through Gardner and see, it was just really quiet and it's not yeah. all that way. 
So you also, some of the funds that come in for me doing this event help go towards the preservation of the OTO. Well, actually, all of all of the funding in the sense of any kind of profits or whatever, but it's uh, uh, we're doing this more as a uh, we've been involved and we've been blessed to be in the, the dude ranching business and the forest service really needs uh, needed some help to kind of get this thing going. So 100 percent of the proceeds uh, it, that we make, of course, we, we didn't make any last year because of the, uh, the flood and the loss. But uh, it, had there been uh, proceeds left over, but a guaranteed 15 percent. So uh, this this, you know, ideally, if we had been full, there would have been something like a 60 something thousand dollar donation to uh, uh, the Forest Service. But I think last year's was right around 14 grand. And then on top of that, our company donated all of the uh, repairs and maintenance. We went in and did some chinking in the, the log structures, uh, and put in the bathrooms and other things like that. And that was a gift from us uh, just to really restore the place because it's uh, uh it's got to happen. I mean, it's just one of those, you know, it's on the national register and uh, it's kind of trapped between two factions or maybe even three factions of the, of the public and the uh, local locals up there and the forest service. Uh, the OTO, uh, I'm going to kind of give you a little background about how the forest service acquired the OTO, but in, in the early nineties uh, it was purchased uh, from private landowners with the help of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation to specifically be elk habitat and grizzly habitat. And so in the early 90s, if you think about it, the last guests were 1939. So it had been 50 years roughly uh, since anybody had ever done anything with the lodge. Uh, so the Forest Service did sort of uh, protect it. They sectioned out, I believe, 26 acres that's fenced in. Uh, and that's what's the, the, the OTO Dude Ranch proper. And the, the original ranch was th over 3,000 acres. I think it was around 3,300 acres or so. Uh, but but anyway, there's a section that wants it to be nothing but grizzly bear habitat and elk habitat. Uh, there are others that want it to be a research laboratory or an educational center. And uh, then there are those that want it to be more accessible to the public on a on a day to day basis, uh, at least during the, the summer season. And uh, so we think that the combination dude ranch and research uh, is the right way to go. Um, I don't think it should be left, you know, just unattended to which it has been i mean the bats and the rats were using it as their personal dormitory before we got up there but anyway that's what, kind of what we're trying to do and get and giving them enough money so that they can see the uh the necessary research architectural uh surveys etc to understand what they're dealing with in the build the building um to decide what to do with it that's incredible so this is actually one of many properties that you have tell us more about some of the other properties that you're involved with well we've uh we have we started out in arizona and really because of the summer heat etc we we looked for two years to find a place up north so that our horses and wranglers and chefs and everyone can head up and get out of the heat for the summer and and uh, uh enjoy montana and, and it took us two years to find the circle bar uh, the Circle Bar in Montana is the ranch where the famous painter Charles Marion Russell uh, went when he was 16 years old uh, and was a wrangler there. Came from St. Louis just because he had a love for the West as a little boy and 
and uh, and was an, began his art, art career there, actually at that ranch. So that was our first Montana ranch. Uh, down in uh, Arizona, we have one in Tombstone, which is an 1880s ranch uh, outside of Tombstone, which is about 10 years after the, the town was actually founded in the Silver Strike. Uh, we have another one right on the Mexican border, and uh, it actually has a building that is the oldest European building built in Arizona, uh, with the exception of the San Javier Mission from Father Kino. And this was uh, built by Jesuits that were, were from Father Kino, but it's right, right on the border. Haciendas from the 1880s. Uh, and then we also own, uh, like the uh, the OTO is the uh, first dude ranch in Montana. We have got the first dude ranch in Arizona as well. It's called the KL Bar outside of Wickenburg, um, which is a little bit northwest of Phoenix. So that part of it and that charm and that authenticity and the history is really what we're all about. And you know the guests love it. We love it. Uh, we don't we don't call ourselves owners. We call ourselves stewards because <laughs> all of these ranches be around for a lot longer than we are. Yes, I love that. So what got you started in this business? Well, my uh, my partner is that he's a lifelong dude rancher. He uh, his father got into the dude ranching business when he Russell was five years old and he's like 62 now. And uh, he, he, like me, loved that historic part of it. And so he had asked me to help him with his personal family ranch uh, in the sense of architecture and the restoration of it because it's a hundred year old ranch. And, uh, and so I got into mainly involved as a preservation architect, uh, but I fell in love with the whole ranching uh, aspect of it and the hospitality aspect of it. Uh, my father was uh, in the hospitality business with, with uh, hotels. And so I had a little bit of background with it and uh, but there's just something about that, that, uh, the sort of retreat and relaxation and, you know, getting away, we don't have TVs, you know, and uh, we have to have Wi-Fi now for everybody. We have Starlink systems for everyone because pandemic, everybody wanted to make sure mom was okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, now everybody's worried about their portfolio. So (laughs) (laughs) we do have, we do have Wi-Fi, but just to get away and, and, you know, it's one of those experiences where a family can come and, you know, the grandkids may not have ever ridden a horse and sometimes the grand mom hasn't either. And so to get out there and explore a little, little bit about what the West offered and, and, and mainly just to, to get away and chill. Uh, um, one of my favorite things is people say, you know, I came here thinking I was just going to do all this archery and riflery and riding horses. And, you know, my thing I enjoyed the most was doing nothing. So that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Yeah, for sure. Why is it so important that we save these places? And like you said, steward them. Well, they're, they're, in our case, you know, the places are historic. And so they're, the history, you know, the ranch on, on our border uh, was where the Marshall Plan for World War II was written. Uh, as I said, it has a building going back over 300 years. And, and so it's, you know, these, these are icons that you can go and not just tour. You're actually living in them. You're experiencing the buildings. You're experiencing the ranch. They all have personalities. And and this isn't just our ranches. This is just um, one of the things about dune ranching is that the people love that sort of authentic lifestyle. Uh, you know, they love their horses. They love showing people what their lives are about. And, and as I said earlier, I'm not a, a natural to it. I'm not a native to it. I came into it uh, from a business aspect and, and then fell in love with it. But uh, the families that have been in this business for years and years really offer something where, you know, they they uh, it's almost like staying in someone's home more than it is 
you know, a, a hotel resort type of thing. Uh, and that, that part of it, I think is really, really fun. We had a, we had a guy come into uh, the office one day and he goes, look, I just want to make sure, you know, somebody stole the TV before I checked in. <laughs> we don't have TVs. <laughs> That's the whole <laughs> And, and they they do love it. They love having a, a place where there's something for all of the family to enjoy, uh, whether it's the kids swimming, uh, learning to horseback ride, improve your horseback riding. No better place to go if you've never ridden a horse than a, than a dude ranch because they're all geared towards, you know, beginners and, and folks that aren't really experienced horsemen, per se. Yeah. So in a way, you're almost preserving a lifestyle, too. It is. It is that. And, um, you know, it's it's like uh, it's like anything, the revival and, you know, in, in the food industry and farming, uh, farmers markets, etc. I think that I think that as we're we're burdened by technology and social media and the, just the rapid change in our uh connectivity which if you think about it i mean you know you're you no matter where you are these days you can get in touch with someone uh, uh i've seen that over my my lifetime and and uh so that part of it but you need that moment to kind of re-anchor or have a chance to just chill you know i, I think that's important um and you know you see folks we, we call it the 24 hour syndrome because they'll come off. They might've had a flight delay or whatever. And they show up at the ranch and, you know, oh, the bell's going to ring for dinner. What if I miss, miss, don't hear the bell. Will you feed me? And, you know, just all this service. And then the 24 hours later, they're just like, ah, <laughs> <laughs> really so love that. Yeah. So we have a lot of listeners who are trying to do some form, I would say, of historic preservation in their small towns. Um, whether it be a historic building or just something cool that's been a part of their town for a while that they don't want to lose. What advice would you have for them in trying to save these buildings and, and pieces that are an important part of our history? Well, you know, speaking more as a preservation architect than, than a rancher, you know, I, I think that, that one of the, uh, one of the things that stops people from taking on a project like that is because they think the cost of the, you know going in and dealing with a structure from head to toe, a roofing, the back wall, et cetera. And, and, and I'm always fond of saying, you know, if you walk down Bourbon Street in New Orleans, the only thing that's original is the facade. I mean, every one of those buildings over the years has had their, their, their structure redone, et cetera. So uh, saving what you see uh, is more important than saving what you don't see. And, and in any kind of preservation work, you know, you need to have some sort of, of anchor and, and to get it started. Uh, I was fortunate to get involved with the uh, uh, first part of buildings at Beale Street in Memphis, Tennessee, the home of the blues and, and all of that. And they were very smart about it. I was young and I learned a lot. Uh, I, uh, you know, but what they did is they took the important buildings and they did them up. They did some head to toe, but most of them were just the facades and they then went in and, and, and reworked the background. But when you go there, you feel like you're walking down Beale Street in the thirties. I mean, there's some more neon or whatever, but you know, they, they were really uh, sensitive to that. And I think that in the small towns, the town has to have a, a, a cooperative sense uh, it might be that there needs to be a, a music store, for example, and that music store might not make a lot of money, but having that as part of the experience uh, might be something worth getting investing in, getting, you know, being part of the whole overall plan. 
because the thing that, that, that inhibits, especially small towns, and, and I'm from a small town in, in Southern Alabama, but in small towns is, you know, every, there's lots of creativity. There's typically more money than you would think, you know, from just looking at the town. Uh, but everybody kind of wants to work in their own little room. And it really does take a, a cooperative effort to come in and say, if we're going to do this, may the best idea win. And, and I think if people go into a, a sit down at a table and they're trying to do something with their town, they'll see that, that, uh, collectively it's stronger than all of the individual parts. And, and that's just true of just about everything in life. That's incredible. You know, you know, it's funny. I've seen the impact over my life of these small towns. And, you know, I can remember there was Dimming, New Mexico, which I was familiar with from from uh, some travels in, 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 in my life architecturally. And uh, but anyway, they had a giant fit over a Walmart coming into town and it was going to run out the little, you know, shops and the pharmacy. And, lo- and it did. But what what the result was, there was a coffee shop. There was an art gallery. There was a bookstore. And, you know, Americans are so industrious that in the result of that sort of impact, uh, the town came out the better. It did not gut it. It did not make it a homogenous little town. Uh, Deming's character uh, is stronger than ever. And I think that that's true. You know, the opportunities in most small towns, if folks will sit down and 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 make sure that they're all on the same page and work together, it's it's usually possible. So I, I applaud you for what y'all are doing is bringing awareness to to the rural communities because uh, uh, they're not necessarily overlooked, but it's rare that people have the time to understand them and enjoy them. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. And it's kind of our own preservation in a way, you know, like we need to preserve these places and this way of life. Is that it's not just the architecture, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. What's one of the coolest projects you've gotten to work on? Oh, gosh, uh, I've done everything from uh, uh, tugboats in, in, in New Orleans. Wow. <laughs> uh, the uh, As I was telling you earlier, I'm involved in the uh, saving the historic Rito racetrack in Tucson, which is the birthplace of quarter horse racing. And uh, it's one of the few racetracks uh, left where literally there'll be 5,000 people there every day. It's an 18 day, uh, just the weekends running now, actually. And uh, to see those, you know, the horsemen and the the crowd come out and the kids from the University of Arizona come out and they're seersucker. uh, And that's been one of the most rewarding because it had a big impact on the city of Tucson, which is no small town, uh, but it's small enough to, that something like that is in the heart of the city. It's historic. Uh, it's on the national register as well. Uh, so that part of it was, was a lot of fun, but you know, anything like this is a curse. <laughs> so, you know, you can be with a building that needs saving, I'm your man. <laughs> That's awesome. You have a lot of fans listening right now. I can tell you that. Oh, I- Business. I don't want to think anybody I was making a pitch to be an architect for somebody oh, no, no, no. wrapped up in the ranches. But but it it is, you know, it's a joy uh to see these places come along. And and you know, I think with the OTO, there's an opportunity for the the to Montana to do something that is its roots and uh can help the forest service. You know, working with any kind of governmental entity has its challenges, but um uh, you know, they it's a public-private partnership in the long run, and and that's the way of the future for uh, for most governments. And you know, especially in the small towns, we go back to that for just a second. Uh, 
a public-private partnership is usually very, very practical. And what that means is through nonprofit equity and investment, you, the governments, you know, work with you so that they can take the assets that they may own. And the, the reason is, is that our governments are burdened with these assets, these historic districts that they somehow, you know, got over trying to save it. And then, uh, uh, but they don't have the monies for the, the operations and maintenance of these facilities. So any little town or any project like that, uh, it's going to take, the future is that the, the government, governmental entities, the private Properties, working with private equity um, is the way to go. And, and, you know, in the case of the OTO, it could be eligible for 20 percent uh, tax credits for all the construction to, to uh, you know, restore it. So those kinds of things, their opportunities are out there. They're hard to find because there's just not a lot of um, people doing it that, that understand that this this help is out there on the private sector as well. Um and most nonprofits, you know, I think if they start looking at making money as opposed to raising money, they would be a lot more successful with their ventures. That's great advice. Um, that's applicable to a lot of us, I believe. So thank you for that, Jay. You actually, you started a nonprofit. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, we've got several nonprofits that I'm involved with, but one of them is Ranch Preservation Foundation. And uh, so we did the restoration of um, uh, the 300-year-old building I mentioned earlier. Uh, we're working with the OTO. Uh, there's a there's a lost uh, smuggler's town called the uh, Presumido Pass, which was uh, where people transferred illegal goods from uh, Mexico into the United States since the late 1800s. Uh, and that's near us on one of our ranches. Is we we don't don't own the property, but we're, we're trying to save that and have done what we can to, to get it cleaned up. So that that part of it kind of um, is more involved with my day-to-day -day business operations. But the Rideau Park Foundation was the one that I alluded to that um, uh, that was for the racetrack. But to do it, we knew it couldn't just be a racetrack and it needed to be a multi-use uh, facility. So the Rideau Park Foundation, uh, we were instrumental in bringing in the largest farmer's market in Arizona. And on Sundays, there's literally like 2,000 people uh, every Sunday of the year uh, come to, to the Rideau Racetrack and, and the you know, it's very, very authentic as well, very foodie oriented. And um, so those kinds of things. And, and I happen to be involved with that farmer's market since its early days as well. Uh, so it's, you know, it, that part of it, it's, it's uh, can't say it's any way to get rich, but it certainly rounds out, enriches your lifestyle, you know. And I think that that's, that's the getting involved with things like this, or um, you definitely get back more than you give. Absolutely. So for anyone interested in coming to the OTO this summer, who can come? Who would, who's a, a great customer? Well, anybody, families come. Uh, we, you know, we've got groups of 11, uh, families of 11 coming. Uh, we've got, you know, single uh, ladies traveling from England. Uh, it's really about anyone. And, and, you know, part of the camaraderie that, that's created at a dude ranch. In fact, I'll tell a quick anecdotal personal story. Uh, my business partner now, Russell True, as I said, when he'd engaged me just to help him with architecture at his ranch, we went for uh, the 4th of July and and uh, there were only 33 people and three of us were Americans. And of the other 30, there were, you know, Holland and France and England. So we line danced for four days and rode horses together for four days. So by the time we left, you know, it's like summer camp or somebody, you know, everybody's yeah. name and all of that. So we say goodbye and thinking we never see him again. And so the next summer, uh, Russell invited us out again. And my wife and I went and <laughs> about 80% were the same people. Wow. So we have lived 
Fourth of, this since 2010. We've spent the 4th of July with them every year except during the pandemic. And I said, damn it, I got to spend my 4th of July with Americans. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. it is kind of relationship, even though we only see these people once a year, is just as if they're close, friendly. You know, you pick up right where you left off when you see them. So that part about it is is, is really interesting. The diversity of the people that you meet. Uh, you know, it's just really important. And we're also hosting uh, Montana State's biology department, their Echo uh, Environmental Studies, et cetera, group. And they're going to come in for a week on the beginning and then I think a staff hosting at the end. So it should be you know, it should be interesting. And that's part of that research aspect that I referred to earlier. Um, so there's uh, it'll, it'll be, you know, you never know. And, you know, you never know what's going to happen at a dude ranch. That's for sure. Yeah. And, you know, there's only so many cabins available. So if you're thinking about going, you might want to get it booked, right? We do limit it to 18 um, for the week. So it is a small and that way everybody gets a rich experience. And, uh, you know, we're not there to have a giant impact on the environment there either. We're very sensitive to, to all of those sort of issues since it is uh, grizzly bear and, and uh, elk habitat. Um, but anyway, that's we're looking forward to it. Awesome. Jay, this has been wonderful. Thanks for all that you're doing. Well, it's fun, and I enjoyed. It. I appreciate your interest. And what a, you know, get to come back and hike up this year while we're open. I come know. Here. I might have to make it out there. That'd be so fun. We'd love for you to come and visit and, and have a stay with us, and uh, we really would. Well, I absolutely love everything Jay is doing and his efforts to save and steward these important pieces of Western history and the lifestyle that surrounds it. I'm also very grateful for the perspective he shared on historic preservation. Head on over to the show notes to see some incredible pictures of the OTO and pop-up ranch experience. Go give them a follow and be sure to book your stay soon if you want to experience this for yourself. A huge thanks to Jay for being on the podcast and thanks to you for tuning in. Have a great day, everybody.